I think we are entering a world when we are on a treadmill. If you are standstill, you fall off the back end. You got to keep running. And that, the oxygen of the economy is going to be learning. Uh, and the, there'll be a variety of ways to do it. And this is a new world. And where degrees fit into that is going to be have to be figured out. and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we have conversations with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. And today's guest certainly meets that description and some. Sanjay Sarma is the Fred Fort Flowers and Daniel Fort Flowers Professor of Mechanical Engineering at MIT from 2012 until 2021. Sanjay led MIT Open Learning, first as director, then as dean, and finally as vice president. And I'm going to be asking him during the conversation um, to tell us a little bit more about MIT Open Learning. So in 2020, he published a wonderful book called Grass, The Science Transforming How We Learn, which he co-authored with Luke Yoquinto. Previously, Sanjay co-founded the Auto Idea ID Center at MIT, developed many of the key technologies behind the electronic product code suite of radio frequency identification standards now used worldwide. He has authored over 100 academic papers on wide-ranging topics and is the recipient of numerous awards for teaching and researching research, including the McVicker Fellowship, the Business Week eBiz Award, and Information Week's Innovators and Influencers Award. And most immediately and impressively, Sanjay has been at the center of most of MIT's innovations and teaching in the teaching and learning space during the past several years. So as always, we will post his full bio in the show notes. But Sanjay, I am so pleased to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Melissa, thank you. Thanks for a, a wonderful introduction and a real pleasure to be with you today. Now, you were educated as a mechanical engineer and have developed an obvious passion for teaching and learning. And so I'd love to know something about the backstory for this. Specifically, can you tell us a little bit more about your personal professional educational journey and how is it that you came to develop such a keen appreciation for teaching and learning. Yeah, thank you, Melissa. Um, I was educated in India. I went to one of the, uh, a great school in India, met my wife there and so on. Very competitive, it was very hard to get in. And uh, I was surrounded by really bright young people. And uh, we went through the mill, you know, we learned fluid mechanics and, mechan and solid mechanics and things like that. But um, I always felt that I sort of got the, I got the math. I did not get the, the physicality of it. I didn't understand why we were studying this. I didn't understand the relevance. Now, as it turns out, um, when I and I didn't do that well in school, by the way, I was uh, I even flunked a course at one point, and um, uh, and I was determined uh, not to be an academic. So I then went to work uh, on an oil rig, uh, you know, in the North Sea of all places, and here I was suddenly, you know, fixing problems with. Uh, oil flow and with um, um, really advanced equipment uh, where you see uh, supersonic uh, speeds and gas uh, flares and so on. And suddenly everything I learned 
began to become relevant. And it occurred to me that why wasn't that relevance made obvious at the beginning? I mean, if I had been given that, I would have absorbed material better. Uh, the cabinet that is our brain, my brain, would have been better organized. Um, I would have been able to retrieve things better because I knew what the, you know, what the application was. And so um, eventually I left the oil rig and returned to grad school, but I returned with a, f uh, a deep sense of urgency and appreciation for good learning, good teaching and pedagogical approaches, but also the lost opportunities that I thought I'd have an opportunity to fix. I didn't actually think I'd become, you know, work on learning per se, but I think that really shaped me. Boy, what a what a transformational experience, but also speaks to your ability to make sense of it uh, and to unpack and understand that it was important uh, as you moved into graduate education. So that that's also a great segue for my next question, because I know in your writing and your and in your speaking, you're you're outspoken, I think that's fair to say, in your belief about the traditional US educational system and the fact that it is flawed. So can, can you tell us what you think is the problem and how did we get here? Yeah, so first of all, let me defend US education. It is flawed, but it's the best there is. It's better than anywhere else in the world, actually, uh, which is a way to say the rest of the world is even more flawed. It's not, doesn't mean that US education is the best it could be either. Um, I think that we suffer from many um, issues. Um, uh, you know, our education system wasn't designed from scratch based on what we think are the principles of learning, uh, et cetera. We inherited it. We inherited it from the French and German systems. Um, and it suffers from many issues. Uh, one of them is that um, there is a fundamental assumption in our education system everywhere in the world, which is flawed, which is that the professor has a pen and the student's brain is a sheet of paper. And all the professor has to do is write on it and declare victory. That's really the essence of it. Actually, the student's brain should be seen uh, sort of like a beautiful plant that's growing, you know, and that's going to flower and bloom. And it needs water when it needs water. It needs nitrogen when it needs nitrogen, sunlight when it needs sunlight, not at your convenience as the teacher. You can't just give it a lifetimes worth of sunlight on day one or water on day one declare victory. And that's the trap we fall into. If you put the student in the middle and the center, the student's formulating a model of the world. We know this even from early childhood. In fact, there's a beautiful book uh, uh, titled the, uh, the Scientist in the Crib about how little kids are actually doing experiments to figure out the world. This is true even with young adults or with adults, which is they're trying to formulate a view of the world and you have to inject information in the right way. You have to reinforce it in the right way. You got to back off when it's right. You got to make it practical when it's right. You got to make it relevant. And I'll, here, I'll leave you with this thought. Every parent knows this. And you might say, well, wait, parenting and childhood, what's it got, got to do with education? It's the same thing. Actually, human beings have this trade-off. Uh, a zebra, a baby zebra can run within an hour of being born. Uh, human uh, children, we the trade-off is we're going to take 15 years to learn, but we're very adaptable. That very same instinct, learning as a child and teaching as a parent, is the same instinct that we use in education, that should be used in education, because that's where it comes from. And we don't.
Yeah, no, thank, thank you for that. And I'm gonna come back to that in a couple of minutes because I've, I wanna get your insights on uh, what gets in the way in terms of how we actually structure learning in the educational system. But I'm gonna hold that thought for a moment because I wanna, I wanna ask you about your book. As I said, published in 2020, before the pandemic. You wrote it before the pandemic, right? Yeah. Most of it, yeah. Um, and you, the book provides a wonderful walk through the concepts that we've come to associate with the science of learning uh, in a really accessible way. I think it's one of the best books I've ever read, actually, in terms of um, helping to understand and unpack uh, the, the conditions for learning, what, what really um, contributes to, to learning. So I highly recommend the book um, to any of our, any of our listeners, um, particularly, particularly as a starting point. I'm, I'm curious why you felt the need to write the book and who did you have in mind as the audience for the book? No, no, thank you. First of all, thank you for the kind words. And I have to say, Luke, your Quinto, who's a dear friend, but also an extraordinary friend, partner, you know, writer, um, bouncer of ideas. We really had a lot of fun doing this. Um, uh, and we also try to keep it sort of easy. You know, we both have uh, a little irreverence and so on. The book is actually written for three audiences, believe it or not. It is not written for teachers only. It's actually written primarily for learners and for, for parents. Now, um, because the center of learning is the learner, and it's really written for the learner. So the reason we wrote, I, I initiated the book, was um, I when I started researching the science of learning, um, there was a lot of dogma out there, which I had to peel off and really begin to understand the cognitive science, the cognitive psychology of learning. And there's some amazing research there. And... Um, and uh, the book is arranged, uh, you know, all the way from neurons all the way to, you know, uh, metacognition. And I started giving uh, talks about it in the 2013, 14, 15 timeframe. And many people came and said, you should write a book about it. Yeah. Well, I was busy writing another book on the Internet of Things, which is my field. And but I began to realize as I gave the lectures that when you talk about science, medical stuff, you think, unfortunately, you have this impression that it's going to be very um, sort of antiseptic and clinical, you know? Oh, you should eat proteins in the morning and exercise for 18 minutes and then study for 11 minutes and then, you know? But actually what I realized is it's very human and there's a historical journey through it, right? Which is Thorndike and Dewey and how it evolved. And it sort of maps into some of the traps we fell into. And so this so with Luke, uh, we started sort of evolving it and the story sort of wrote itself. And we tried to make it accessible by being, um, as I said, irreverent, uh, but also making it more human. So the book sort of wrote itself, but really in the end, it's for learners. And I think parents and teachers next. Yeah, and that, that comes across clearly. It, it's, and I think it's maybe one of the reasons why I, I really appreciate the book, one of many. Um, because that makes it unique. A lot of the books that are out there uh, on learning science don't have the learner as a primary focus. And I know as I was reading through, the, reading through, and I reread it previously, but I reread it again over the holidays in anticipation for our conversation. And because I'm now teaching doctoral students and uh, working with students who are really, really bright, but 
who've not learned how to learn. There were several points at the book where I, in the book where I thought, oh, I, I need to share this with my, with my students because I do think um, it will be very helpful. And the stories that you tell, uh, irreverent or not, are really helpful for, for making, making what you write and the concepts so much easier to understand. No, yeah, thank you. I think that um, I think that one of the challenges in our education system is actually unsympathetic mm. to the very human needs and foibles of people. Mm. Uh, the fact that the lecture plows on regardless of a student's attention wandering, and that's nature after about mm. 10 minutes, is in fact deeply insensitive to our clients who are I think mostly human beings. <laughs> and um, I think that um, um, we lose people and then we wonder why we lost them, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it actually diminishes the self-esteem of the student themselves. They feel like, oh, I screwed up. No, you're human. The system yeah. does not work for you. And so I think if we can sort of square that circle, we will make a lot of progress in ed fixing education. Let, let me ask you to unpack if you would, if we could kind of walk through the concepts in the book um, and in a high level way, um, I, I would appreciate your unpacking um, the, main, the main concepts. And I, you know, you organize them in, in terms of layers, uh, which, you know, is one question. Why did, why are you, why did you organize um, in terms of layers? And then maybe if we could go through the four layers and get your take on what's, you know, the most significant takeaway. Yeah, so the um, first layer deals with, uh, so we organized in layers. Actually, let me explain first of all why we organized it in layers, mostly because I'm an engineer, right? And if you use the internet, um, there are layers in, in the internet, mm -hmm. you know, you have a browser and you can download pages, but there's a layer below that. It's um, has to do with uh, how uh, the internet works. And there's a layer below that, which is how wireless works and so on. So there's a stack. The brain is no different. We have neurons that do low level things. Um, and then one level up, you have uh, sort of brain regions. And then in one level up, you have the whole brain. And then you have, so so, so thinking in layers is a very engineering thing. And um, so that's that was an, uh, an analogy that, uh, that uh, Luke and I sort of landed on. I used to call it the cognitive stack in in uh, in uh, engineering in the internet. It's called the IP stack, internet mm -hmm. protocol stack. So that's a little sort of a nerdy thing, but it turns out to be a good abstraction because um, you need to understand how things work at the neuron level. And neurons um, are, uh, you know, all animals pretty much have neurons, right? I mean, any uh, any animal, which any multicelled animal, has some sensing, and um, and eventually you get to the level where they have neurons. You know, whether it's an octopus or a or a sea elegans worm or a fruit fly, they all have neurons. Or or or, the, or a California um, 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 snail, right? Which we talked about the plesia. So. Um, so it turns out that, um, and then, so that's at the low level. Then level two is one level higher, which is, you know, the neurotransmitters and how uh, curiosity impacts, um, um, you know, learning. It turns out curiosity is the most important thing, which we've somehow sort of weeded out of, um, of education. Then there's a third level, which is, you know, looking at things, sort of trying to explain things um, um, from the perspective of, uh, 
are you thinking inside out or outside in? You know, are you trying to explain things from neurons outside? Are you looking at the whole brain, right? Which is where Ford and Dewey, uh, sorry, um, Thorndike and Dewey got into a battle. So that's a third level. And then there's a fourth level, which is thinking about thinking, which is how do you metacogn um, do metacognition, which is how do you think about the uh, education as a whole? So that's how we organized it that way. Now, the ultimate goal in science is to connect across the stack. Can you explain all the way from the neuron level, all the way to how this amazing, beautiful thing called the brain with all its emerging properties, you know, its, its quirks, its idiosyncrasies, the things that make someone lovable or interesting or infuriating. Can you explain all the way? And it turns out no, because there are 86 billion neurons. Just because you can explain how two neurons interact or 10, doesn't mean you can explain that emergent property of 86 billion neurons. So you have to look at it in layers. There, is, there are a couple of things, by the way, that you can actually explain across. And then one of them is, uh, is space retrieval, space learning, because it turns out you can sort of explain it at the neuron level. You can explain it at the second level, which is you can explain how you know, curiosity and all these things help. And you can explain it all the way at the, at the you can see that property at the learning level of a, of a classroom of beautiful brains, right? Um, but not a lot of things can be explained up and down the stack. And in some ways, the battle in education over the last hundred years has been people trying to explain it inside out, which is start, starting in the neuron and trying to generalize to the whole brain. And people starting by saying, by being humble and saying, we don't understand it all the way down. Let's start with the whole brain and be human about it and explain it. And that latter, in my view, is the right approach because it was more humble. There was more humility. And that's where Dewey comes in. And that's the Dewey approach. And um, a lot of good learning practice sort of reflects what Dewey uh, thought about and something I talk about. Hondike started by, he didn't even understand it all the way, but he started studying cats and pigeons and came up with this behaviorist analogy, which um, is very um, impoverished in terms of understanding the beauty of the brain. And unfortunately, that's the battle. He That approach won the battle. It's sort of a pseudoscience to some extent, or a limited science, a reductionist science. And a lot of our educational systems are based on that. In fact, uh, uh, Ellen Langman, who's the dean at Harvard, the Graduate School of Education, said, um, we need to understand that Klondike won and Dewey lost. And the holistic view of the brain has taken a backseat to the sort of um, more data-driven um, scientists uh, I call it, you know, people call it scientism approach to the brain. So it's a long, it's a mouthful of an answer, but that sort of addresses, I think, the questions you asked. Yeah, no, that's very, very helpful. Let, let me, if you don't mind, I'd like to dig a little deeper. Uh, from the learner's perspective then, how, how might I become a better learning, a learner? Uh, let's say the spacing and recall concept. So what, what would that mean in terms of what I might do to improve my learning? So it turns out that you the best way to learn, I'll give you a, a, a formula if you, I mean, you know, you can't really reduce it to a formula, but I'll try. And I'll give you a high level view of it. The best way to learn is to learn in short sprints. Mm -hmm. At the end of a five, 10 minute sprint, ask yourself questions about the stuff you just learned. And then go do something else, interleave, right? So if you're doing math, 
if you're doing uh, areas and surf volumes, uh, do areas, but then do areas for spheres, then go to areas for cones, surface areas for cones, then do volumes, then come back, switch, switch, switch. And then come back tomorrow and try and solve some problems. And then come back a week later and try and solve some problems. And it's that, it seems a little bit chaotic, but that's how we learn. The reason is we like differences. And forgetting, it turns out, is a very essential part of learning. Because when you start forgetting something, the brain, by the way, is incented to forget stuff. Because you learn, you hear so much junk you don't need to remember, right? It's trying to forget. It just doesn't know what is important and what it should forget. So if you remind the brain, just as you're about to forget, it says, oh, this is important. I need to remember this. So mix things up, short sprints. Immediately after learn something, ask yourself questions about it. Then do something completely different. Hmm. Just revisit it a day later, revisit it a week later, revisit it a month later. And if you're forgetting, don't feel bad. That's actually an opportunity. Remind yourself. And that's how learning occurs. So that's one very simple thing. And by the way, if you use Duolingo or learn these language programs, they do some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, let me give you a high level thing. It turns out that a lot of practices where we think we're learning and we're doing a good job of learning, you know, you reread things and highlight them and all that, don't work very well. And a lot of these practices that I described to you, they have the unfortunate, uh, they have this unfortunate thing in that they, um, they seem more difficult to do and you'll feel like you learned less. Actually, what you're doing when you do all this, what I described to you, is effortful learning. And it turns out it's effortful learning where you expose the fact that you've forgotten it and you're recalling it. It's there that the learning occurs and actually it returns the results in long-term learning. If you're just trying to pass an exam, then actually cramming works pretty well, but you won't remember for life. Right, yeah, it doesn't stick, does it? So thank you, that was a very, very helpful. What about, you talked about, you referenced curiosity. So as a learner, how can you make curiosity work for you? Look, uh, this is such a beautiful, I'm so happy. <laughs> that uh, I discovered this, it sort of uh, filled me with the warm glow because remember I said it, I expected something antiseptic and clinical. Yeah. And then we discovered the importance of curiosity. It is fascinating. You know, when you're hungry, saliva flows and you go look for food. If you're an animal, you forage, you become, right? I see, a, see curiosity is something similar. And the equivalent of saliva is dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of research now. I'm learning more and more after we wrote the book about how novelty and curiosity uh, generate dopamine. And once you generate dopamine, a certain circuit is awakened. It's called the dopaminergic circuit. Then mm -hmm. once you, uh, you activate the dopaminergic circuit, learning comes easy because it's like you're hungry. The saliva's out, you're eating. And if we could sort of flip everything and focus on curiosity and relevance and why this is important, the rest follows. But actually what we've done is the opposite. What we're saying is don't be curious, take my word for it, open your brain and I'll write on it. Mm. And that's our problem. Mm. Um, so uh, this whole dopaminergic circuit novelty curiosity is central and we've lost the plot. Mm. What about overlearning? You know, there are some things that you do want to overlearn, right? I mean, for example, um, I'm 
I'm, I, we like to think, Luke and I, that we're very progressive uh, in teaching and learning, but there are some who say, well, you don't have to learn the multiplication table because you know you have it on your iPhone. Why do you need it? No, you need it. I'm sorry. You do, actually, right? Because um, you need a certain facility, right? Uh, you're driving your car, you're running out of gas, you got to figure out how many miles are left and uh, whether you'll get there, you know, the, how many miles you get per gallon. You're going to, you know, you're not going to pull out your iPhone. In common activity, there are certain things that have become instinct instinctive. Language is another one, right? Um, so overlearning in some respects, you do need it. I don't think you uh, you have to throw the baby out of the bathwater. I think yeah. you've got to get your multiplication tables. I'm sorry, right? Um, but in certain other places, it can be an impediment, right? So there's a trade-off, there's a gray area. Yeah, you know, it raises for me the question about the chat bot. There's been so much discussions, right, lately about the fact that we're not gonna have to teach writing anymore at some point because we can rely on. So I would imagine you have an opinion about that given what I'm hearing you say. Um, I uh, believe deeply that writing is the highest form of thinking. And if we concede everything that is human to a robot, we cannot complain when the robot takes our job, when the robot takes our pleasure. The chatbot is amazing. We should see it as a friend, as a coach, but it is not the real thing. Mm. Having used uh, chat GPT now, as I said obsessively, what I find now is it's quite exceptional, quite interesting. I made it write a poem the other day and then I made it to reframe it as a rap and it did all that. But if you look deeply, it's actually very banal. And what makes humans different and as I said earlier, surprising and lovable and infuriating all at the same time is we're not banal. And I, I, as I said, I've already complained about multiplication tables. If we ever say don't teach writing, because ChatGPT will do it for us, uh, I'll be the first to go with a, you know, and protest on the streets. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing and merging at an ever increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Educational Leadership with a concentration in higher ed leadership and organizational studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed program in response. The EDD program prepares students to become self-aware, effective, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, our students learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd.
Sanjay, in your book, you write that you believe that the best education is still a human to human education. And so I think that's what you're talking about in terms of the role that technology might play here in regard to learning. Uh, is there anything more you would like to say about that? So um, first of all, uh, I think we have a misunderstanding about learning. Um, if you watch a kitten learn from its mum how to hunt, there is no lecture, right? It is entirely what is called implicit learning. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the cat has a curriculum. She brings home a, a, a dead mouse and then a somewhat dead mouse and then a live mouse. And she's creating a scaffold for the kitten to learn. But it's, uh, and it's by mimicking, it's scaffolding, and it's all implicit. There is no lecture. I've never seen a cat give a lecture, um, although I've seen a lot of cat videos recently. <laughs> we, human beings, have the advantage of language and we can create an explicit curriculum, which is important. But there's an implicit curriculum, which is irreplaceable. Ask this of any soccer player or football player or baseball player. Ask it of a, of a pilot. Sully, you know, probably learned something implicitly in which he applied when he landed that plane on the, on the Hudson. Ask it of a thinker, of a researcher, of a painter, of a writer. There's something deeply implicit. And it's a false dichotomy somehow, and a false assumption that somehow we can make things explicit and we can make everything explicit. That implicit channel will never go away. And it's essential. So humans as teachers should never be removed. That's a wonderfully important message that educators uh, need to be reminded about among, among others, because I think I see this in, in so many people that I know who are teaching, particularly in the K-12 uh, arena these days, and they, they feel discouraged about their impact or lack thereof, as they describe it. And it, it leads me to my question about what gets in the way? Um, you know, you read your book, and as an educator, I read your book. It it all makes intuitive sense to me. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of it seems commonsensical in some ways, and yet, you know, we're we're a long ways away from uh, having the typical learning experience designed with these concepts in mind. And so, what? How do you make sense? How do you make sense of that? What gets in the way? Is it organizational culture? Is it false beliefs? Yeah, it's a it's a very important question. I think I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think that, um, or I should I should say I know I'm thinking about it a lot. But what I think is that if if you look at humanity before we were organized, right? There was no structure, so everything was difficult. So we introduced organization and structure and systems. And often the system is the problem. Our systems are designed in a certain way, Thorndike one. Uh, in fact, there is, I think, a bit of a divorce, I'll just to use high school and, you know, in general, right? Between the way things are organized and the way where teachers and parents and children need know they need to go. There's a, they're sort of divorced. And 
Um, and the reason is it comes back to the term scientism, which is the sense that we want to measure everything. And But, you know, some things can't be measured today. They can only be measured 10 years from now. So we only do the things we can measure now, as opposed to being really thoughtful about doing the things and recognizing that things can only be measured 10 years from now. So we go to short-term goals. So I think the structure is deeply immobilizing in many respects. Uh, and that's a very high level answer. But the low level answer is if I wanted to say, I wanted to do space retrieval, right? How, how do I do it? It's it's really impossible. If I wanted to say, I want to flip the classroom, do I have the facilities? Will the, will the school support me? Will the college support me, right? When do I invest the time? Um, and then if I want to do, I'll go on a field trip. Do I have the resources? How do I get, you know, it's every little thing becomes difficult. I, you know, look, my mother was a teacher. I think that uh, uh, the most impactful people in my life have been teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost every one of my teachers uh, was a human being. <laughs> yeah. I'm being sarcastic. Uh, every one of them was, in fact, a human being. But my point is that they did it despite, not because. Let me switch gears. I want to ask you about MIT because MIT, I mean, you know, you've been, the school's been at the forefront of just about every institution level innovation in recent times. And in your various roles, including serving as MIT's first ever, I think, director of digital learning, uh, beginning in 2012, you've been in the middle of just about every one of those experiments, which must've been great fun for you, um, I would think. So you now have the advantage of hindsight, so I would love to have you unpack some of these learning experiments and what you've learned about educational innovation, uh, what you've learned about transformational learning, I guess, as a result of these experiments. Um, and there's a lot of them. So I don't know where you want to start, you know, from course 2.007 to Teal to the MOOCs to MITx. Open Learning Today, credentialing. I know you're really excited, I think, about the MicroMasters from what I've what I've read. So where where would you start? And uh, how can you help us unpack some of these? So maybe I, a little bit of history might help. MIT was sure. established in 1861 before the Civil War, and then the Civil War broke out in first classes in 1865. The word technology was new. Literally, the word technology was new when MIT was established. It's the first high-tech school. And technology was this vocational thing. It was only during wars um, uh, and um, you know construction. That's when in the concept of technology slowly started getting elevated from vocation to something. Uh, a vocation is a good thing. MIT, we don't reject vocation, right? Uh, but something uh, more and more sort of uh, scientific and more profound. I mean, the recognition started occurring. Um, and MIT has always had a very earnest approach of learning by doing. In fact, our great seal has a person reading a book and a person holding a sledgehammer. And the campus, if you uh, visit the campus, the first floor, all the ceilings are very high because the workshops are supposed to be in there. And so this is a, something that runs deep in the soul of MIT, which is just do it, try it, build it, break it, weld it, you know, bend it, you know, take it into the field. And during World War II and then during World War II, um, this became, um, you know, sort of a central thing of our society because technology became really fundamental. But that earnestness never went away. And so this business of getting your hands dirty is very central to MIT, right? 
And that earnestness also gives my colleagues a wonderful, innocent sense of experimentation and a lack of rules. Mm. Right. And this is, and also a, a, a strange uh, uh, desire to just give things away. Uh, just So over the course of 150 years, I mean, MIT by definition is an experimental innovation, actually, I mean, an educational innovation. Uh, but over the course of 150 years, there have been waves and waves of innovation, you know, for example, putting the basis of science behind engineering, uh, making it much more sort of model-based and then uh, computers and artificial intelligence. Another one was uh, our engineering education requires a lot of humanities course. It's actually a liberal arts engineering education. Mm -hmm. But um, more recently, um, there was uh, in 2000, the 2000 timeframe, uh, a few of my amazing colleagues, Hal Abelson being the lead, um, decided to give the, our entire curriculum away for free to the world. And that's open courseware. And people thought, why are you doing that? Right, why that's pretty counterintuitive. That's pretty counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I don't think we could, we, I mean, I can articulate it now. I was actually involved, actually my wife was a consultant by coincidence in that effort, so I was deeply involved in that. It's because we realized it is not the explicit that counts. The magic is here on the campus and it's implicit. We'll give the explicit away to the world for free mm. by the curriculum. If you read you know, take it. And and by the way, please use it. Benefit from it. But that's really that's only one piece of it, is the implicit, yeah. right? Be on yeah. campus, be with your colleagues, with your friends, your professors, your machinists, make something, break something, have a discussion, have an argument. So that was open courseware. And then around the same time, the uh, Teal was launched. This is John Belcher and Laurie Breslow, uh, amazing uh, uh, colleagues, and they launched the, uh, something called the Technology Enhanced Active uh, Learning Classroom. And the idea was, uh, actually, they will tell you they were inspired by something at RPI and then something at another school, which is called Studio Physics. And um, and the idea was, why are students sitting there sort of fading out in, in lectures on physics when they could actually be doing it? So rethinking the classroom around circular tables where they did experiments to learn magnetism or uh, uh, you know, electric chargers and so on. That was another transformation. Then we launched edX and MITx. Uh, and then another issue that we took on, which is why does admissions work the way it does? This is a more and more in interesting and I think troublesome question for us. So we introduced the MicroMasters. And in the MicroMasters, we said, we'll take a master's program. I did this with my dear friend, Yossi Sheffi and Chris Kaplis. We started with the, the supply chain MicroMasters. Um, we'll take the master's program, we'll split it into two halves. It's a one-year master's. We'll take the first half, which is a semester, take all the courses, put them online. Students can take them for free if they want. That's how MOOCs work, right? They can pay a little bit, get a certificate. There's a final exam. If they finish, we'll give them a certificate called the MicroMasters. No admissions. And if they have the MicroMasters, they can apply to MIT. If they get in, they finish in half the time at half the cost. That was a MicroMaster. So that was an attempt to reinvent admissions by eliminating it. We call it inverted admissions, right? And what was the motivation for you wanted to make uh, the education more accessible? Did you want to reach more people? Was that the... Yeah, it was actually two or three things. One is we want to make it more accessible, for sure. 
And you can see that was also before COVID, by the way, and during COVID, supply chain became a fundamental issue, right? Right. So, uh, so that's one. The second is um, we really seek talent. And this was a dragnet to find those gems at the bottom of the sea and pull them mm -hmm. out. And uh, that was actually essential. That was the second thing. And the third thing was to help the economy because it turns out a lot of companies wanted people to get upskilled in the space. And they didn't have to leave their jobs. They could do it part-time and just get the MicroMasters. Mm -hmm. And so it was a win-win-win. It actually worked. And it's and the cost of education. We have the cost of education of a master's. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, so uh, many things but you know i think that if you can frame problems you can find solutions i think the courage is in framing and stating the problem sometimes yeah yeah and a willingness right to see yeah. to see it clearly um which is really tough sometimes in an institutional setting yeah. um so how are the how's the micromasters doing do you do you know enrollment wise Oh yeah, it's doing spectacularly well. Uh, we started with this one MicroMasters. MIT has now five going on six. We have 1.25, actually it's more than that, million people enrolled in just MIT's MicroMasters. Get that, 1.25 million. 1.25, from around the world. From around the world, just MIT. Yeah. And there are now and, more than 50 MicroMasters from 25 universities on four continents. Yeah, and at MIT, do you know how many then? go on and get uh, a master's degree? So we, at a small campus, <laughs> we can only admit 50. So our distillation yeah. column uh, is extremely, um, they are, we distill a lot. So we get really great talent, but actually a lot of the people who finish are very good. So a yeah. bunch of universities around the world have said, hey, can you send people our way? Of course, we can't send them. It's up to the students to apply. Right, right. We have dozens and dozens of partner universities, ASU, Purdue, even Harvard, uh, all over the world that will take folks who come through the MicroMasters and give them the second half, the regular masters at their okay. school. But yeah. we are limited to a small campus. That's what I was wondering. I would think a network would be yep. very, very attractive and, uh, you know, quite significant. So. Um, what's, can you talk about the open learning today? What is open learning today? Um, how, what, what, what's part of it? So open learning is, um, I stepped down as VP up doing it for almost 10 years, uh, in Jan, in June this year, uh, I'm a regular professor now. Um, and uh, I was on sabbatical actually. Um, it is a wonderful team of, uh, more than 150 people. It has uh, two sides to fit, uh, two sides. Um, and then there's research. There's a third piece to it. So the two sides are um, all the stuff that is free or freemium, you know, like OpenCourseWare, MITx. You can take the content for free, but you pay for a certificate. Uh, MicroMasters. So that's one side of it. We have a group of people who work with faculty to produce it. Then we've got to pay the bills. So we have a professional side, which is um, meant for working folks at companies who are willing to pay money to learn executive knowledge so we have something called xpro we have something called boot camps where people come yeah. in and do um, hands-on activities we have something called horizon which is where they can read about cutting edge stuff so that's paid only and that sort of pays for the first piece and then we have a bunch of research so we have um, um, the jameel world education lab which is a consortium of universities and entities around the world that come together to talk about the latest in education we have the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative, which looks at the science of learning. 
we have the Center for Advanced Virtuality, which looks at augmented reality and virtual, virtual reality. We have a Center for AI, RAISE, R-A-I-S-C. So there's a research piece, there's a freemium piece, and there's the corporate piece. And together, they also, they're the engine that drive open learning. Yeah, yeah. And you, this was your baby, yes? Yes. During your, was, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had many parents, but I was the head. We built this entity, and uh, it is an amazing group of people. Um, yeah. It's a buzz with activity. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friends. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, yeah. it's kind of mind-boggling, actually, to look at all the innovation that's happening there on different levels. And I'm going to come back as a final question and ask you about that, because I, I do want to get your crystal ball thinking about the future. Um, but I, before I do that, uh, I want to ask you again about your book. As you said, you wrote it before COVID, and yet the ideas seem more relevant now coming out of the pandemic, if in fact we're coming out of the pandemic, who knows, really. Um, but the ideas seem even more relevant now, given the transition that so many schools have been going through in terms of how they deliver, deliver learning. So I'm curious, uh, what your thinking is about what we've learned from the pandemic, what we need to pull forward um, in terms of learning, what we need to leave behind? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, yeah, the pandemic is an endemic, I guess, now. And uh, yeah. But I think that looking back over the last two or three years, uh, I'm, um, you know, I mean, what did nature do? Nature confiscated our right to be together. And we pulled it back. We fought as uh, humanity fought back and we sort of like re-extracted that right to be together. And I wrote an article right at the beginning of the pandemic for the World Economic Forum. And I said, I hope we don't go back to the same old world where this hard fought right of co-presence is squandered with boredom and one-way conversations. What we need to do is uh, completely rethink education. We shouldn't recreate Zoom classrooms except we're sitting together, which is basically, uh, you know, the Zoom had neither the charm of proper online, nor the impress, not the, neither the effectiveness of proper online, which is asynchronous videos, you know, think Khan Academy, edX, et cetera, nor the charm of at least being together, right? And my worry was we'd go back and I have a, sinking feeling we're going back to the old ways the problem is the students have changed completely during covid right. and they are thirsting for engagement and yeah. we're not giving them that and engagement has to be the watchword and to do engagement I'm, i mean i'm not trying to promote uh, luke in my book but to do engagement you got to get you got to rethink the classroom and pedagogies. And in fact, we're seeing this in student motivation. We're seeing it in student uh, stick with itness. Uh, we have to rethink it. And I have a sinking feeling we're returning to an old normal when the students are in a new abnormal. And that is, uh, I hope we fight it, but um, comfort zones are hard to get out of. I just have two more questions. Um, I want to talk a little bit about innovation. Um, because your book, your professional journey tells such a compelling story about innovation and what it takes for both an individual and for an organization, a university to try new things. And as you know, universities are not always known for being 
being places where uh, innovative thinking is uh, easy to do, and yet the capacity for innovation is more important for college, for many colleges and universities, their survival than, than ever before. And so you've, you've given me a wonderful explanation already about the culture at MIT, the fact that innovation is in the DNA, it's in the water of the place, it sounds like. Um, so if, if you think about institutions that are not like MIT, they may not have that heritage. Um, they may not be as well resourced. Are there any lessons that still can be applied in terms of how do you create an innovative culture and uh, you know get get newer thinking uh, going? So I have a slightly um, dire sort of view of it, which is this: What makes MIT innovative is a certain sense of innate urgency. Um, I want to do it tomorrow. That's you know. 3D printing was invented by one of my colleagues at MIT. 3D printing is, I want a part, I want to do it now, right? I and mean, that captures it, right? There's an innate urgency, intrinsic. Unfortunately, there's extrinsic urgency creeping up on higher ed. And higher ed may not know it yet. There are tremendous uh, pressures going to land on them. First of all, they're already, some of them are clear, $1.75 trillion of student debt employers how can it possibly be how can these three things be true students are under debt pressure and are unhappy their families are unhappy right employers are saying mm, you know you're not producing what we need there's a skills gap how couldn't those two things be true and college uh, business models are breaking how can these three things simultaneously be true and then leaving that aside there's a demographic uh, bubble coming which is after the 2008 crash there was a baby bust actually. So student numbers are going to go down. Affirmative action is going to be ruled on by the Supreme Court. I fear that innovation is forced by urgency. As I said, MIT has it intrinsically, but I think that higher ed will have will end up in unfortunately reactive as opposed to proactive mode when this comes crashing down. So that's my dire feeling about it. What about your own personal journey? as an innovator, are there some particular skills or, I mean, were you born <laughs> as a highly creative, innovative thinker, or are there some particular skills or qualities that contribute to your success that you've honed along the way? Um, thank you. Um, look, I, I truly deeply believe that every baby is the ultimate innovator. Because when a baby is born, I mean, she has, she has to learn language, she has to learn to walk, she has to learn society, and maybe learn multiple languages, learn math. Uh, I was very blessed and I was lucky in that my parents gave me a lot of freedom uh, to go break things and, you know, uh, and also my, just my personal journey, coincidences, etc. I had to sort of innovate. Uh, actually, I'm somewhat lazy. I'm just telling you, right? So I'm quick on my feet, you know, so that helped out. I'm restless. That's another thing. Um, uh, I probably have a smidgen of ADHD, you know. Um, but I think, honestly, innovation is a human thing. I mean, if you were in the Serengeti 80,000 years ago, you were innovative, trust me. You had to, you know, uh, find the fruit, make sure the monkey didn't eat it, make sure the lion didn't kill you, 
make sure you didn't kill on a sit on you know step on a snake you were innovating you were finding new food sources you were finding you know new ways to survive it is intrinsic i think we just need to unleash it and give people the license and one of the things we do in our education system is take away the license you know we have all these expressions curiosity kill the cat why do we say that to people you know um you know all good things come to those who wait it's all about controlling and repressing and I think that's one thing that I somehow sort of uh, found a way out of, but I think it's a very human thing. I truly deeply believe this. So my final question, uh, in your book's epilogue, you talk about having the advantage today of hindsight. And you also write that there is no better day than today. Now this was three years ago, you wrote this, but no better day today uh, than to announce a new age of learning. So. What does that new age look like? What is your vision for the future of learning? What are you personally most excited about? Are there some innovations or some new things you've seen that you think, wow, that's really going to be game changing? Um, and then what's the most important work that needs to be on our radar, that needs our attention right now? I think that it's hard to do some of this within structures. It is outside the structures. I am a deep believer in micro-credentialing, sprints, where you learn something new. And actually with the gig economy, where people are working short-term gigs in various companies, we'll be, in a, we'll be on a new permanent treadmill of learning. So I'm actually very excited about learning something online, doing an internship, getting some expertise, getting a job, getting a gig, right? Applying it. Then meanwhile, as you're doing it, you realize that some other new skill has to is becoming important. You know, you thought you were doing stuff on Twitter, Twitter ads going down. I want to learn on TikTok. How do I, you know, I'm a digital marketing person. I think we are entering a world when we are on a treadmill. If you are standstill, you fall off the back end. You got to keep running. And that, the oxygen of the economy is going to be learning. Uh, and the, there'll be a variety of ways to do it. And this is a new world. And where degrees fit into that is going to be have to be figured out. Uh, indeed, that's going to be a big question for a lot of learners and also colleges and universities that make livelihood off of uh, the offering of degrees. So uh, Sanjay, thank you so much. I am so inspired and I want to get do whatever we can to get your thinking out to the the educational world, because this is exactly what we need to be talking about and uh, working on, I think, as we go forward. So thank you. Thank you so very much. Thanks very much, Melissa. Such a pleasure. Uh, Happy New Year and uh, look forward to maybe meeting soon. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free Leading Edge Thinking and Higher Education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations 
from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Thank you.